Man, go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it open to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, I want to I wanna begin by adjusting my stand. <laughs> uh, and then after that, uh, I want to say uh, a couple of words of thank you and then offer uh, some words of prayer on behalf of uh, the folks down that were impacted in the synagogue shooting yesterday uh, down in Poway. Um, but let, let, me, let me begin with a word of gratitude uh, on behalf of uh, the staff of the church, those of you who volunteered last Sunday, those of you who invited your friends to come to Easter last Sunday, uh, and those of you who continue to come to New Vintage and pour yourselves into this church believing in what God is doing in our church and the bright future that it has. I want to say thank you. Uh, I often jokingly refer to you as America's most flexible church, and uh, I'm not kidding. I mean, you guys blow me away uh, with just uh, how flexible you've been and how your attitude continues to stay so wonderful through all of this. So um, I just want to say thank you. And then uh, as we turn our thoughts toward the Word of God this morning, I want to offer um, just some words uh, of prayer on behalf of uh, those that were impacted by the, the shooting yesterday in Poway. And so um, would you just join me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into our study this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, we bless your name. We, um, we come before you on the one hand, Father, with anticipation and for what you're going to do this morning and what you're doing in our church. And at the same time, Father, our hearts and our minds are with those who uh, have gone through just a terrible um, loss. And so, Father, we pray for them. We pray, Father, that the promise of Jesus, that those who mourn would be comforted, would be found true there. Uh, and, Father, for those who are caring for the victims, for those in the community that are shaken by what took place, Father, we pray for peace and for comfort. We pray, Father, that our, our eyes and our hearts would always be directed toward those who, uh, who are impacted by things in this world that sometimes defy explanation, and that our faith, Father, would remain strong in the midst of it so that we can be a blessing to those who need us. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. Let me begin with these words as we launch into a series that we've called Timeless, Eternal Truths for Life at Home. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. So it says it's alive and active. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So that's what's claimed about the word of God. That it's eternal and yet it's alive, it's active. And that it does something very, very significant for us in the time and the place that we live which is it judges our motives. It judges our actions. It makes sure that the motives of the heart are being parsed through to help surface when we're deceiving ourselves, when we're lying to ourselves, when we're being lied to. It teaches us things that are extremely, extremely valuable. And so this is a series about God's Word, really, and about what it teaches us about life at home and how we can be more faithful and live more abundantly uh, in the home. And I'm going to give you the first kind of eternal truth, if you will. And it goes like this. The eternal is greater than the latest. The eternal is greater than the latest. 
Now, this isn't a series, again, I want, I want you to understand, this is not where Tim, uh, the perfection uh, incarnate or something, gives you the wisdom about how you too can be as perfect as me and my wife and my kids uh, and all the relationships that I have are. Not at all. At best, I am a beggar sharing bread with other beggars here, and I, I do feel like um, the best thing that we can do in a world and in a society where we are as confused about all sorts of things as we are is return to something that is more eternal. Uh, rather than just the latest. And anything that we hear that is new, it might be groundbreaking, we measure against things that have lasted a very, very long time and are given to us by the author of relationship itself, the one who created male, created female, created all the races of the world, created all the species of the world, created all of the institutions that we hold dear, like marriage. Uh, and that speaks into what it means to be single or what it means to be divorced or what it means to... Uh, build relationships back together that have been broken. So this is a series about going back to teachings on life at home that are timeless and help us live more abundantly in our time. And this particular sermon is just laying the groundwork for that. And so we're going to talk today about uh, a big fancy word. We're going to call it epistemology. That's just simply the science of how we know what we know. How do we know things are true? So the other day I was going into my personal favorite store, 7-Eleven. And I walk in there, and for years I have wondered and wondered and wondered. They have a thing that blows air right down from the top of the doorway, down into the doorway. And it's, it, it's forceful. It blows your hair. I mean, it's a hairdo's nightmare. It really is. You walk in, you think you're looking good. You're on your way to church, for instance, to preach. And you go in, and all of a sudden, you know, and your hair just falls all over the place. I got to think, guys with toupees or whatever, it's a real, they have to really put some thought into, I really want to go to 7-Eleven today or not. Or if I'm pumping my gas, I really want to go for the, for the Coke. But they, they uh, I go in there, and for the longest time, I had no idea what in the world they were talking about. Uh, why that existed. And I would go to people, and i go, hey, you know why they have that thing in the, in the doorway? And some first person I, that I can recall said, yeah, that's actually just the, uh, the blowback from the air conditioning system. So they, the, when they have their air conditioning running this summer, it blows air down into the doorway. And it's like it's, it's letting off steam, like an exhaust pipe from a car. And that didn't make any sense to me. So I kept asking around, and, and then it became, oh, you know what that is? Yeah, that's just to uh, relieve you. So on hot days, they'll turn it on so that when you come in, it's like having a fan, and it blows air on you. And so if you're sweaty, it makes you feel cooler as you walk into the store. That didn't make any sense. And I kept asking and asking and asking. Nobody bothered to say, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay, everybody felt like they had an answer for it. Nobody could just have the guts to simply say, I don't know. And they would prefer to spew uh, just, I mean, insanity or foolishness than to actually just say, I don't know. And so... I finally got a hold of the owner of the 7-Eleven, and I said, hey, what's the deal with this terrible thing? And he goes, just to keep the flies out. And I thought to myself, I go, you know, that's kind of a good idea, really. If it keeps flies out, and you, you have a place that serves food, and you, people are gonna, you want people to stay for a while, keep the flies out if the doors are opening and shutting. It makes perfectly good sense. But at some point, you have to go to the person who installed it to go, hey, you know what? Uh, what is the actual reason and the purpose for this? And they can say, hey, let's keep the flies out. Otherwise, you end up listening to people. Oh, yeah, man, boy, they're running the air conditioning again today. You see all the wind that came down in the doorway? And you end up with stupid things, and you end up following bad advice. 
Whether you're married or divorced or single or young or old or lonely or you've got a ton of friends, God's Word has so much to offer us on relationships. In our society, sisters and brothers, I, I, I don't want to be... I'm not a negative Nelly by nature. I'm not a person who just looks around and curses the universe that we live in. I, I think God is on the move in all sorts of places uh, and that, that he created us fundamentally good in his image. Having said that, I do believe that beyond dispute, our society is extremely confused right now about life. What parts of life? Pretty much every part of life. Almost every part of life that exists. The reason is not that we don't have enough information. It's because we desperately need to rediscover eternal truths rather than a quick fix that's born of some sort of reaction that we have to the crisis du jour. We need to, we tend to make the mistake of thinking that because it's newer, it's better. We live in a world where we are told increasingly that if we try harder, we will be more successful only to find out that in the realm of relationships, we continue to turn the jar lid the wrong way. And the harder you turn it, you're not getting any further, and all it does is actually make it harder to actually eventually turn it back the right way. The more effort we spend at the wrong thing doesn't make anything easier or better. We'll just call that the treadmill fallacy, if you will. Try harder, things will get better. We're also led to believe that knowledge can substitute for obedience. The more you know, the farther you'll go. Not necessarily. Could be the more you know, the dumber you become. I learned two or three facts about why the wind was blowing down in the doorway before I actually got there. Just because you learn an amount of things does not make it better. The fallacy of data, we'll call that. And I don't know, how many of you say it data versus data? If you're a data person, raise your hand. All right, if you say data, raise your hand. All right, good. You're both wrong. No, I'm kidding. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know how the third way to say data or data would be. I kind of zig and zag between the two. I say both ways. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm right all the time. It's probably how it should be said. <laughs> but the fallacy of data, the more, the more you know, the further you'll go. And I'm going to say that word a lot, so you'll notice I'll probably accidentally say it the, the right way occasionally. But sometimes the fact that you need to change your life is as simple as stop being a jerk. It's really not land on the moon kind of breakthroughs or something that takes a five-year research report from the people in Geneva to produce it. You could just ask your spouse or you could just ask your kids. You get to ask your boss, why haven't I been promoted in the last 10 years? And they might say, well, because you're a paycheck player. It's not in your bones. These guys over here work it by passion and you work this way. Hey, look at that. It didn't take a research project that long. All you had to do was ask somebody. All you had to do was say, honey, why is it that this and that and the other happens? Why is it that our kids seem to be growing more and more distant from me? Why is it that nobody on earth seems to ever want to hang out with me? I'm 40 years old and I still don't have any friends or something, right? Why? Sometimes it's not rocket science. And so just knowing more doesn't necessarily change everything. Sometimes we're told, and we'll call this the fallacy of empathy, that our race or our gender or our sexual orientation or our politics determine our identity rather than our identity in Christ. And unless you are what I am, then what you have to say is of less value. Now, God's word would say that's a lie. 
And that when our identity becomes a bubble of groupthink of any kind based on that fake identity, then wisdom will miss us. So we've gotten to the point now that in our conversation, sometimes I'll be talking with somebody about some part of their life, and, and we offer a mini resume of our categories on the front side of whatever we think, because we think that unless we have those checkbox markers, then what we have to say has no value. So I might say, for instance, hey, as a lifelong Christian, a man and a father, a pastor, uh, a home renter, a Padres fan and a nacho lover, I just want you to know this is how I feel. And if I check those boxes, then that's valid. Now, in truth, these kind of faux identities only provide cover for deeper problems that we have, and they often allow us to avoid voices from outside our own bubbles, and that would include God's. The Rolling Stone fallacy. The more relationships you have, the better. We live in a world of very quick leavers. People who abandon their relationships and their commitments way too easily, and we are just kind of beginning to reap what that looks like in a world of kind of mass and social media, what happens when I kind of determine how, my, how, my, how am I doing relationally by the number of likes I get on things I post, or how many friends I've got on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of those kinds of places. This kind of Rolling Stone syndrome, if you will, will keep us rootless and loving very little other than ourselves and our own interests. For those are the only things that you really take with you when you go from community to community, friend to friend, church to church, spouse to spouse, boyfriend to boyfriend, girlfriend to girlfriend. And so what I'm hoping to do to kind of set the table for the morning is just, and really the series, is kind of surface our collective problem, if you will, and then offer back to you Hebrews chapter 4, the timeless solution, the eternal solution of the Word of God for us. Now, we're very much prisoners to the present. Uh, I have kids. They all think that, that whatever they like is the best ever, right? Uh, music, you listen to somebody, and because uh, they're number one now, or they've made it like for three whole weeks at number one, that they are the greatest ever, that, that generations from now, people will still be listening to their music when in reality almost none of them will. Um, people show up uh, early on and they have a great career in sports and people go, well, they're, the, they, they're going to be the best ever or they are the best ever because they're the best now. Actors and actresses. Oh, they're gonna, that's the greatest actor or actress of all time. My daughter Olivia was with her friends. They were on a, uh, a day kind of just hanging out up in Hollywood. She and her friends and they were... Um, walking down Hollywood Boulevard that night. There were parents there, don't worry. But I wasn't there. And uh, so we were talking to her on the phone, and she goes, I go, how's it going, you know? And she says, hey, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, she, I go, where are you? You're out in front of the, what used to be called Man's Chinese Theater. Um, right there, right, where, the, where, where all the big movie premieres used to happen. And she goes, yeah, they're honoring, you know, some old guy or whatever. So I had to step away from whatever, some old guy. <laughs> What's his name? I don't know. Just some old guy. I go, can you ask Mr. So-and-so who it is? She goes, something Eastwood. (laughs) And I was like, like, Clint Eastwood? I was like, are you telling me? Are you kidding me? Like, some old guy? And I thought to myself, how dare you? No way, man. I was like, Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry. I mean, come on. Uh, William Money from, from Unforgiven in the line of fire and 
I mean, it's on and on and on and on. Don't call him some old guy. You know, there they are. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are people walking around this park, and that's, what, that's how they see even what we're doing. What are they doing over there in the courtyard? Oh, they're honoring some old guy. Right? That's just how they see it. You know, we're prisoners of the present. God's not some old guy. And he's not desperate for an update. He's eternal. What he teaches is not only true, it's been found true for a very long time. And our church isn't fundamentally about tradition or nostalgia. Those aren't, those aren't bad things at all. But Christianity teaches that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that would include being a husband, being a parent, being a, a godly single person, being uh, a godly person in the aftermath of divorce. See, we believe as Christians that there is a timelessness to what is taught in Scripture. It's not old. It's timeless. And there is a difference. Your dad's cologne is old. Okay? What God says in the world, sorry to older dads, and I'm an old dad, actually. <laughs> My cologne, I guess, is old. All right? But, but there's a difference between old and timeless. Right? Your 1981 Buick Riviera is old. A 65 Mustang is timeless. See the difference? Okay. <laughs> apologies to people with 81 Buick Rivieras. I've got to give you the customary apology these days to, on everything I say. So let's drink of uh, something timeless, like the pure water of God's word. It's not old like last week's Chinese food. It's timeless like fine wine or the purest water to the thirsty soul. So let's drink of it this morning, shall we? Now there are a ton of false wisdom sources out there. Bill at the water cooler, Kathy, the neighborhood watch lady, friends at school, armchair quarterback, friends, people that are telling us about why the, the air blows down in the doorway at the 7-Eleven. And then there are the so-called experts. These are people that have a lot of expensive wallpaper. They have a lot of things to say. They have letters after their name, and they're supposed to be credible. But I'll just say, as one of those folks, I'll just say that sometimes today's facts are tomorrow's absurdities. We have a way of proving ourselves wrong, and today's breakthrough idea will be gone in a week or two. So once again, you, just because you know it doesn't mean that it, you're going to know it forever. There was a time that science told us the earth was flat, and science told us that, the earth, that we all revolved around the earth, and all sorts of things, that the universe revolved around the earth. So I keep going back to the scriptures that say, like this, and from 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So let me give you a, a, a quick question here. Without some compass, without some point of reference, how are we to determine what's actually wise from foolishness? If you don't have a compass, how do you tell? Well... If you're not rooted in the wisdom of God, it usually boils down to what kind of wisdom sounds wise or whichever wisdom we would like to be true. And this is a serious matter because people's lives are ruined and robbed of abundance by listening to foolishness masquerading as wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools 
despise wisdom and instruction. So a person who refuses to fear the Lord is not wise. They're a fool in the eyes of the Bible. And that wisdom begins there with a fear of the Lord, listening to what he says, a reverence for who God is and what he says. In no area of life are we as thirsty for advice as we are for things that have to do with life at home. Marriage, kids, relationships, singleness, money. And at the same time, we've never had more information. So why are we increasingly confused? Why can't we seem to find the answers? Why are our families struggling the way they are? Well, let's go back and revisit a couple of the fallacies real quick. The fallacy of data. The more you know, if we could just get the facts, if we could just do enough studies, research it enough, we could find the answers. Well, a therapist by the name of Edwin Friedman observed that if data were all that were needed, therapists would have the most functional families of all, right? They'd probably have a zero divorce rate. Their kids would all be just perfect. I'll add to that mix, biblical scholars would be the most righteous people out there, right? I mean, even common experience tells us that in some way, shape, or form, it's not necessarily true. There has to be some point where you learn, and then you take it and you metabolize it through everything else that we know from experience, and you do something that it says. So even the Bible understands it's not even just about knowing it. It says, don't be just hearers of the word in one ear and out the other. Do what it says. So why is it not enough just to learn? Why can't I learn and do? Because who you are and who you're becoming is more important than how much you know. So it's not just about information. It's really about wisdom. And information can play a part in wisdom, but those aren't the same thing. It's not just information that we need. It's wisdom married to obedience. The fallacy of empathy we talked about. I want to camp out here for just a second, okay? Empathy is not bad, okay? But empathy can be a big danger in the world that we're living in. Uh, I don't want to confuse it with compassion. You should always be compassionate. You don't always have to be empathetic. Okay. It goes like this. Never challenge or be critical of somebody until you walk a mile in their shoes. Okay, so if I walk a mile in your shoes, your opinion will be valid. That makes sense. So, so if if you're crazy, I mean, if you've got a really abhorrent, morally terrible idea, if I do the same thing you do, if I walk a mile in your shoes, that makes that idea right. Well, of course not, right? We all understand. No, that doesn't doesn't make anything right just because you you repeat what somebody does. Or if I feel bad for you, then that makes it okay. See. There's a point at which, when you get to that point where you say, no, unless you can do this and that and the other, unless you're just like me, you've been gone through the same experiences I have, uh, you and I share the same check boxes, and only then will I listen to you, that it creates kind of a, a staircase of problems. Today's version might be, if you don't belong to a certain group, then you don't have anything to say to me. And that's not really, certainly not biblical, and it certainly creates... Um, a ton of problems for us. <clears throat> so when we come take a look at this, uh, at this kind of a thing, I would just encourage us to say that, uh, you know, if, if, if we take a look and we just all uh, try to mimic each other all the time and do that, think about what that does. It says two things. One is 
uh, I have a hard time hearing anybody that doesn't really, uh, hasn't really walked in my shoes. So let's just take a look at me. Who will I not listen to? Women? Seems like a good idea, right? Um, who else? Anybody that's not white? Anybody that's not a Christian? Uh, anybody that doesn't eat what I eat? Anybody that doesn't politically where I am? Now, is that going to lead to a life of wisdom or not? Sometimes the thing I need the most is an idea from outside my bubble. And sometimes when I'm in absolute pain and anguish, one of the best things that somebody can do for me is not talk out of the same woundedness that I'm in in the moment. I need somebody who has, is not that broken up at the moment. Now, does that mean you don't grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn? No. What it means is as I'm mourning or as I'm grieving, I don't refuse to hear from anybody else, and that applies to categories like gender and race and everything else. In the kingdom of God, what the Bible teaches you is your fundamental identity is found in Jesus Christ. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you believe that or you don't. And what's being taught to us today is that you only listen to people who have been through what you've been through. And the truth be told, and I've, I've watched a lot of pain in people's lives, okay? Somebody's always got it worse than you. I mean, I mean, in here we've got some pretty stinking painful stories, okay? But there are other painful stories that are even worse, okay, that are out there. And so at some point there has to be a reverence for the walk of others and how God might be using that person to speak a word that's light into your darkness. Empathy is great for increasing compassion, but it's often terrible at imparting truth, and it can even be a very good disguise for falsehood. Sometimes precisely what we need to hear is coming from someone outside of our experience who is not as wounded or who can give me insight into how my actions and behavior is impacting others that are not like me. Sometimes I want to hear, oh, Tim, I'm so sorry. What I need to hear is grow up, Tim, <laughs> right? But if I only sit there and say, well, you just don't know how bad I've got it. You don't know how much pain I'm in. And that's the only thing. It doesn't mean it's not valuable. Support groups are awesome, uh, things like that. But you, what you don't want to do is get to a point where you only listen to people who are in the same spot you are. That gets very, very dangerous. And I guess uh, the easiest illustration I might have for this is that you don't want to follow somebody that's heading in a different direction than you just because you're starting in the same place. So if we all decided, hey, like when we get done with church today, we're all going to go get in our cars and go. Well, if I just decide I'm going because we're all in the same place, that I'm going to follow you wherever you go, I'm not going to end up where I need to go. I need to be taking a look at, okay, where am I trying to head? And so even if you and I are in the same spot right now, I'm heading a different direction than you. I want to head over here. So if you're heading over there, you know, the, the, where I'm trying to go needs to really define uh, the way that I respond to these types of things. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you the holy hierarchy. I've given this to you before over the years at New Vintage. I'm going to give it to you again. Eternal truths. Um, God gives a pretty clear set of priorities. And if you get this right, okay, I often tell people, choose your mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. So make good ones. Like make ones that don't, uh, that are fixable easily. This one is hard to fix, okay? So I'm going to give it to you, and I, I hope you'll take it to heart. We'll talk about it over the next, uh, we got seven more weeks after this, okay? 
It goes like this, the holy hierarchy. God's first. If you're married, your marriage is second. And if you have kids, your kids are third. Okay. Oh, no, the kids are supposed to come first. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's what society says. That's what the people who are telling you why the air is blowing over the doorway are telling you. But the author of life, the author, the one who gave us our kids, uh, says it's different than that. And when those priorities get out of whack, it's not too hard to tell when they're out of whack and what the repercussions of those are downstream. So what does a family look like where, let's say, the marriage is on the top, kids are second, and God's on the bottom? Uh, Well, usually what you have is you have a family, a marriage, where the parents are always uh, out doing their thing. They kind of outsource parenting to to others. They give the kids lots of opportunities uh, by by just paying for them, but they don't spend much quality time with them. They don't care much for their spiritual uh, metal that's being developed over time. Uh, They make sure that they're traveling a lot, usually just the two of them. The kids uh, are involved in a ton of activities. Uh, church is a Christmas and Easter thing at best. And, uh, but you're likely to see, if they're a Christian family where the priorities are out of whack, then you'll see a lot of Christian paraphernalia around the house, in the car, on the radio. But it's not showing up in the life. If you have one where the kids are first, mom and dad are second, and, and junior is third, what you have is a child-centered family. And so that is, uh, no matter what, we put the kids first. So that means uh, whatever Christian stuff happens comes dead last. Um, and we, uh, we, on Sunday morning, for instance, I wake up and I ask the kids if they want to go to church. And then when they say, no, I don't, then we all stay home. There's no separation between mom and dad and kids. Kids are first, right? So we do whatever the kids decide they want to do. Marriage is second. So then it's, hey, honey, do you want to go to church? So if the kids want to go, we probably go. If they say we don't, Maybe I just go with my spouse, but if she doesn't want to go either, then I stay home. Because God's third, right? Now, I'm just talking at the realm of church attendance, but you can take this and apply it to almost any area of relationship you want. What's it look like when God's first? Well, some of it depends on who's second and third underneath, uh, what it might look like. But um, let's say that it's God and then kids and then marriage. Then what you have is uh, a marriage that doesn't get cared for very much. Uh, the ch- family tends to, uh, in my experience, be workaholic at church. Uh, they overextend themselves. Uh, and the marriage uh, kind of gets passed over. The kids are next because they feel like, hey, we're giving and giving and giving uh, to others and everything, but we're not caring for the marriage. And eventually the marriage starts to wobble underneath because the kids are, are next in line. So if it's in the right order, what does it look like? It means mom, dad, kids, everybody are all committed to the same thing. What's that? God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving their neighbors as themselves, what God's doing in the world, that's their priority. And their life reflects it. Now, there are a lot of ways you can reflect it. I'm not going to be as narrow as just simply saying, and we'll talk about how all this plays out in the coming weeks. But when those priorities get, you know, out of whack, things can get really weird really fast. And so by the time that, for instance, in a child-centered family, your kids grow up and they go away to college, um, they lack a spiritual core, and they often flip out in college. That's my experience. I was in campus ministry for a long time. But they don't have the, the root system. So when the storm comes, blows all the leaves off the tree, the tree dies. It doesn't, it doesn't grow back again as easily. And so parents are going to hear us say, if you don't do anything else, get your kids rooted in the faith. I mean rooted in the faith. 
not mildly acquainted with the faith. Deeply rooted in the faith. Because that is your primary task as a parent. It just is. Now, you can pretend it's something else. But that's what God's going to hold you accountable for. He really doesn't care how, quote-unquote, successful your kid is. Because if they're successful at that stuff and they're a failure at worshiping his son, then they've come up short. And your job is to impart that to your children if you don't do anything else. My job as a husband uh, is not just to get my wife to like me. The Bible will tell me my job is to help her become holy because God is first in our marriage. So that means we are together submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It means that I am doing everything in my power to help her grow as a woman of God as she helps me grow as a man of God. And we help our children grow as people of God. Because, again, who's on top? God's on top, right? Now, how all that happens, and and then you just carry that over into any aspect of of life that you want. Okay, if I was really going to honor God with my time, what would my schedule actually look like? Does it mean that I have to, is there a particular pattern? Not necessarily. But what would it look like? If I were really going to honor my wife and my marriage and really spend the time that I ought to, what would it look like? If I was really going to take this seriously, what in my life would need to change? That's the journey of the series. Next week, we'll be inside. Thankfully, we won't be, we won't be outside until October again, we think. So uh, we'll be over in the, in the conference center. Um, Kayla's going to talk about friendship. What it means, how do you honor God in friendships? What do you do, what do you not do? Uh, and I hope that something that's been said today will be a blessing to you as we try to pursue the eternal instead of the latest. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and gather around the Lord's Supper. Those who are going to be uh, passing the supper. Go ahead and take your spots. Go ahead and invite the band to come back up. As we accept God's invitation to listen to his word about love and sex and friends and money and marriage and singleness and parenting and single parenting and other topics that are among the most crucial parts of our lives, we're taking a commitment uh, to listen to what Jesus says. So when he asks those who are listening to him, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Uh, We don't want to be those folks. We want to be the people that are calling him Lord and are listening to what he says. And so this morning we incline our ear uh, to the word of God. And as we pray and we sing and we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying in the taking of the bread and the cup, we're saying yes. That's what we're saying. His body, his blood, we're saying yes. Let's pray together.